Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, historian and professor of modern Irish history at UCD, Dermot Ferreter, discusses his book Between Two Hells, The Irish Civil War. The moderator is author and Irish Times journalist Rowan McCreevy. The episode was recorded at Dublin Castle on the 9th of October 2021. My guest today is Professor Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. I'm sure a person you all know well or interested in history. And we're here to discuss his new book, Between Two Hells, The Irish Civil War. I suppose, Dermot, I could start by saying that this isn't a, a, a conventional telling of the story of the Irish Civil War. No, I remember when I was a student, when I started studying history in UCD, a book by Michael Hopkinson, Green Against Green, The Irish Civil War, was the standard text that we went to uh, for an overview of the Civil War. It's a very fine book, and Michael Hopkinson was a very fine historian, and he was very good at documenting the chaos. Mm. He described it as a conflict that had an, had an ill-defined beginning, an ill-defined end, and chaos in between. Mm. Uh, and in fairness to him, he did a very fine job of documenting the extent of the fighting in different parts of the country and trying to make sense of what was a highly regionalised conflict, uh, as in many respects the War of Independence had been. Uh, And it's a particular type of history, that kind of history. Um, So a very fine book. I think what's changed in the meantime, obviously the opening up of archival material. You know, we have access to uh, such a range of material now that wasn't available to historians in the 1980s and the 1990s. And I think sometimes we can do a bit more now to try and find the, the, the mental bones beneath the physical flesh of the Civil War. Uh, what was the texture of it, not just in relation to the fighting, uh, but in relation to what people were thinking at various stages, you know? What were they recording in private? Uh, sometimes putting that alongside the, the public rhetoric and the propaganda, which is an intrinsic part of the Civil War, and seeking to make, make sense, and this is important for me, of its afterlives, of the detritus, of the legacy, How did those who survived deal with the aftermath? And we have really illuminating archival material around that now. So it does offer us an opportunity to ask new questions and seek to answer them. Uh, I wasn't going to write about the Civil War unless I had something new to say. Mm. Uh, And that's where we are an extraordinarily privileged Mm. generation of historians to, to, to just have so much material at our disposal to try and, I think, reset the parameters of our interpretation of our inquiry it would, you know, I mentioned that label, green against green. Mm. Uh, brother against brother was another label often used mm. uh, in relation to the Civil War. Um, and they were understandable titles uh, of their era. But they don't do justice to, I think, the complexity. Um, there were not a lot of people in between. We often think, for obvious reasons, of the Civil War as being about uh, bringing the polar opposites mm. um, out in people onto the surface. And brother against brother would suggest, of course, a, a very male conflict. Mm. But we think now about the women. We think about those who were um, left wavering. Uh, One of the most interesting pieces of research that I came across was by Jimmy Wren, the historian who looked at the GPO garrison Mm. in 1916. Uh, There were 572 recorded people in the GPO garrison uh, in 1916, not the 50,000 who later claimed uh, that they were there. But of that 572, uh, 41% of them were neutral during the Civil War. That's a very striking statistic. And it's, I suppose, also about those who have to leave, who don't find a future in post-Civil War Ireland. Another very arresting figure for me, it's a part of the country I'm particularly interested in because my ancestors are from there in West Kerry. There were 257 recorded members of Common Amman in in West Kerry. 
uh, during this period. And of that 257, 106 of them had left the country by the 1930s. So there is an exodus too. Um, and I was trying to, I suppose, make sense of, of the reasons why people couldn't find a future there or, or, or found themselves very disillusioned uh, about post-Civil War Ireland. Um, but there's also, of course, not just the Southern Irish experience, there's also the experience of, of, of those in Ulster. Uh, there's a parallel, deadly conflict going on, obviously, uh, in the new Northern Ireland. So it is a very complicated picture. Uh, it's a very bleak uh, picture, understandably. And yet, we do need to be mindful that we recovered relatively quickly. We put ourselves back together relatively quickly. We hung on to our democracy. Um, there was a strong emphasis on the things that um, people had in common as opposed to what divided them. And that did facilitate uh, a return to, I won't say normal times for people. It did facilitate, however, a return to a stable democracy that was able to endure further upheavals. Your, your book is, uh, we were speaking earlier on, that your book is one of the first books, I think, to, that is, has predominantly drawn on the military service pensions collections archive, which were first released in 2014. Just for some people in the audience or people watching online, can you tell us what the military service pensions collection is and why it's such an important archive for, for us? There were decisions made in the 1920s to try and compensate those who had been bereaved or those who had suffered loss of livelihood as a result of their service, their active service between 1913 and 1923. Uh, there's a whole host of pieces of legislation in the 1920s and the 1930s and beyond and amending legislation. I won't go into all the technicalities of that. What it amounted to was an attempt to deal initially with the consequences uh, of, of bereavement and the violence and suffering of the Civil War and the War of Independence, but also demobilization. There was a really bloated national army um, at the end of the Civil War, in the summer of 1923, over 55,000 members of that army, which was far too big for a state of this size. And they needed to demobilize. Uh, they needed to get rid of in the region of 37,000. It's estimated that of that 37,000, about 9,000 of them found employment. Sometimes when you go into the Dublin Diocesan Archive, the archive of, of the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, you can get a sense of what people were facing. Real destitution. There's a letter there from 1925 from uh, an organization that was catering for the needs of ex-soldiers who'd been demobilized. And they estimated that between 80 and 100 of those soldiers were sleeping in the Phoenix Park at night. That was the level of, of, of destitution. So the pensions process is partly in, in, the, in the 1920s to provide some kind of a, a subsistence uh, existence for those uh, individuals uh, and their families. And over time, it's expanded. Uh, when the new Fianna Fáil emerges in, in the late 1920s, they're very, very critical of the pensions uh, process, but they embrace it mm. uh, when they get into power in 1932. Uh, and by 1934, uh, it caters for the other side of the Civil War. Initially, the pensions uh, process is for the National Army side, but it's extended to include uh, the IRA, the anti-treaty IRA and Common Man. Um, so there's a big piece, 1924, the Pensions Act, and then the 1934, and a whole host of amendment acts. What it amounts to is one of the most extraordinary uh, archive of, of conflict anywhere in the world. Yeah. And that it has been released is an enormous um, positive uh, for, for historical inquiry. Uh, it's also reflective of a very liberal policy in relation to the release of very sensitive uh, and raw uh, material. But you're looking at in the region of 300,000 files. The vast majority of people who applied for pensions were not successful. W.T. Cosgrave in the 1920s, when this process began, emphasised that the bar would be set very high. 
and the pensions overseers were true to their word. It was set very high. People had to account for what they had done. They also had to uh, detail as much as possible, and it, it did need to be verified. And there's a lot of luck involved in that in relation yeah. to who's still around to, uh, to verify that. Uh, and we know from a government memorandum that in the late 1950s, uh, 57,000 people had applied, 16,000 of them were successful. And then later on, uh, uh, the end of the following decade, about uh, 82,000 applications overall, and 18,000 roughly were successful, mm. the vast majority are disappointed, and it is a catalogue of disappointment. Mm. But all of the applications mm. were kept very, very carefully, uh, and they were locked up, quite rightly, for a very long time. They're being released now uh, in phases. And what is so magnificent about this archive is that it, this isn't just about military endeavour. No. You get a light shone on medical conditions, on housing conditions, on social attitudes and social conditions. Uh, on desperate poverty as well, but also on the different experiences of men and women in, in different parts of the country and how they are attempting to cope uh, with the aftermath. It's quite a lottery, uh, and there's an awful lot of exasperation and frustration, as well as dignity in these files. It's, it, it's lovely to be able to read handwritten letters, uh, and even people who are in very desperate circumstances and impoverished uh, can compose very powerful, beautifully written uh, accounts of their plight um, and what has happened to their families and why they feel they are deserving of a pension. And most people were awarded a pension at the lowest level. I mean, it's graded A to E. The vast majority of people are being awarded the lower grades. That might mean for some of them maybe 22, 23 pounds per annum, uh, the equivalent maybe of five or 6,000 euro. Uh, so people were not going to get wealthy on the back of these pensions. Uh, but for some, it would keep them above Water. We could we could we could spend this whole day just talking about individual pension applications. I think one that will really uh, stuck in my mind and still does to this day when I was looking through the pension files is that of Charles Hawhey's father, John Hawhey. Just tell us a little because he, he features in your book. Tell us a little bit about about his situation. Well, John and Sarah, uh, his wife, were both very active in in Derry, um, in the Common Man and in the IRA. John ends up on the National Army side um, and, to cut a long story short, really has a, a breakdown uh, during the Civil War. He has responsibility for a lot of different troops in, in Mayo and we know from his application um, that he had some kind of a breakdown uh, in the midst of, of, of Civil War. He's described as highly agitated and you've got to decode a lot of the language that's mm. used in the 1920s and the 1930s in relation to what people are suffering mentally. Mm. Uh, they don't use the language that we use today. Mm. Um, and there's often reference to people's nerves mm. uh, or their agitation. But um, they were trying to link his experiences during the Civil War to his development subsequently of MS. Uh, and he becomes desperately sick. Uh, he has to resign his commission. Uh, in the National Army. He uh, attempts to try and run a farm at some stage in Dunshockland, uh, but they end up moving then to back to a part of Dublin uh, where the young Hohi uh, mm. is reared. It's a big family, and they are completely impoverished. Mm. Uh, what we get in the correspondence of, of the Military Service Pension Archive is uh, an application for a disability pension mm. as well as yeah. uh, a military service pension. Uh, and he eventually qualified for that, but it came very late, and he by the end of his life, uh, was incapable of leaving the bed uh, or any kind of independent living. It's, it's very distressing to read that kind of material. It's replicated 
um, across the country and across different groups uh, of people. It does make you think about how Hahi's character mm. and attitudes may have been forged in childhood. Uh, and I'm not a psychoanalyst, and I'm not going to pretend to be, yeah. but you know, it's an obvious question to ask about whether that degree of privation uh, can have a profound psychological impact on people and may um, certainly affect their behaviour uh, and their attitudes uh, to various things. Uh, you know, I don't need to lay that on with a trowel in relation to Charles Hawley and his taste mm. for the finer things in life. Uh, is there a connection? Uh, there probably is. But what that story is, first and foremost, is a story of the terrible distress that was caused by the conflict and the way it manifests itself, um, where people get very ill. And that's what I mean about a medical history. Uh, you do get specific references to uh, traumatic neurosis and what we would label today post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and there are some who, who managed to get medical testimony to the effect that they can trace this back to their experiences. They were very young, a lot of these men and women. George Lennon is another interesting character who was with the IRA in Waterford at the time of the fall of Waterford City at the beginning of the Civil War. And he was barely out of his teens. And he was traumatized by what happened. And when you go through his pension application, he lived such a long life. Uh, he was still alive at the age of 90. Uh, he began practicing Zen Buddhism in the United States. He was still seeking some kind of uh, peace or inner peace. About 10 or 11 changes of address. Um, and eventually medical testimony becomes a part of, of, of his various updated applications for a disability pension that what he is suffering, suffering from can be traced directly back to the War of Independence and, and, and Civil War. So for many, it's about carrying those mental scars uh, for the rest of their lives. And you can see it in the women as well who have particular challenges when it comes to making the case for a pension. They're confined to the lower grades, D and E, because they're deemed to be an auxiliary force coming on. Um, which, according to their definition, they were. Uh, but it becomes very heated at times for many of these women, trying to prove that the work that they were engaged in had a profound effect on them mentally and physically, whether they were enduring soaking, soakings, and many were suffering from TB, uh, or were harboring men on the run, high-risk activity, but it was not deemed often to be active service because it didn't involve firing, yeah, firing a gun. gun yeah. And there's a lot of resentment about that. Nora Martin uh, was very vocal about the overseers of the pensions process being all male. Mm. And she admonishes them in 1940 saying, it's impossible for you to visualize the feelings of these women. Uh, and she describes uh, what these women were facing, not just in relation to the work that they did during uh, the conflict, but the cultural barriers that they were facing, the sexism that they were facing. Uh, it was doubly difficult for many of them. Um, and she was writing on behalf of Ellen Carroll, who was described, she was a common man activist in Cork who ended up working um, in, in London during the Second World War in a sorting office during the Blitz. And she's described as a complete wreck. And it is striking how often that phrase is used, a complete wreck. And you're talking about people who are still young in the 1930s and 1940s. These are not old men and women, but they have been prematurely aged. Yeah, you, you talked about there at the beginning about the cliche of brother versus brother, but actually, uh, as you say, women had a very significant role to play in the Irish Civil War. I think all the women, six women were in the doll. They all voted against the treaty. Um, just tell us a little bit about the impact that the Civil War had on, on the women who became anti-treaty? I became very interested in the long-term effects of hunger strikes 
a lot of women go on hunger strike, over 90 of them. There were a lot more women incarcerated during the Civil War than had been during the War of Independence. Um, you know, and I write uh, somewhat wryly that women had finally achieved equality yeah. in September 1922 because uh, the, the instruction to the prison authorities is don't make any distinction mm. in sex. Uh, and many of them were, were dealt with very violently. Um, but there's over 500 of them incarcerated and over 90 of them go on hunger strike. Uh, and I think we often think about uh, hunger strikes that are taken to death and, and the devastation that's involved in that. But there were a lot of, 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 of women who were on hunger strike for maybe up to 30 um, or even 40 days. And many of them were carrying the after effects of that for the rest of their lives, you know. One doctor describes uh, an ideal specimen of womanhood, a woman in her early 20s uh, prior to her hunger strike. Uh, and she, you know, she dies a couple of years later uh, from uh, the effects. It's a combination of exposure and hunger strike and, you know, those kind of incidents. But it's also about them dealing with the attempt to dehumanize them. Uh, the propaganda war is ratcheted up in relation to women. Um, and this is about what's said publicly, but also privately. Liam de Rochte, who was a pro-treaty Sinn Féin TD in Cork, kept a marvelously detailed diary throughout the Civil War. And he refers to the women who were on hunger strike as not normal beings mm. who don't think in a normal way he described them as monomaniacs. And there is this concerted effort, publicly and privately, uh, to try and depict these as hysterical and incorrigible and incapable of rational thought. And PSR Hegarty, at a later stage, goes so far as to deem women responsible for the ferocity of the Civil War uh, because they were incapable of rational thought. And uh, you can see how that, you know, strips them of their, of their humanity and of their reason. Um, and Mary McSweeney is often held up as the ultimate example of this. Yes. And of course, she takes on church and state during the Civil War because she goes on hunger strike in November 1922. She is the keeper of her brother's frame, Terence, who famously died on hunger strike during the War of Independence as the mayor of Cork. But she's also very much her own woman. Um, she takes on church and state um, because the church is, mm. is not allowing her to receive the sacraments. Um, as she takes on Edward Byrne, the Catholic Archbishop of, of, of Dublin. But she also specifically refers to her struggle as a woman mm. and what I am dealing with here uh, and the refusal of the authorities to recognize the right uh, of women to have these deeply held convictions um, and, 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 and to take the, uh, the protests that they were taking. So women are facing a lot of, of that at the time, uh, but then also obviously the sense after the Civil War that they need to go back to their rightful place, that they have prescribed duties, that those duties are in the home. Um, you know, there's quite a hostility to the idea of women in public life. Um, and, you know, obviously there were women in the Doyle uh, who were regarded as just spokespeople for the dead, uh, for their dead relatives. But the way Aid English put it, and she had no dead relative to, mm. to throw in your teeth, as she mm. put it, she was a doctor. Mm. These were highly intelligent, mm -hmm. uh, highly educated, qualified people, many of them. Um, and they felt this abandonment very deeply. There's a terrible line from Sheila Humphreys, who was another Republican activist, about the aftermath. And she said, we were so flattened and we felt that the public had forgotten us. And we were wearing the Republic, she wrote, like a tattered garment mm. around us. Uh, that feeling of complete deflation. And even, you know, one of her um, colleagues who had written a memoir uh, about this period, Maura Comerford, who again became a very well-known uh, vocal uh, anti-treaty Republican, she couldn't get her memoir published. They were untouchable in, uh, in, in some ways. They were uh, not regarded as, as people you could do business with. Why do you think it is that common man, you know, 
I think was alone among the major Republican organisations to go, not just anti-treaty, but overwhelmingly anti-treaty, I think about 90-10 or something, or 85. Why, why was it that so many active Republican women were against the treaty, do you think? Mary McSweeney wrote about this, um, again invoking the name of her, of her brother, and she quoted Terence McSweeney in his book, The Principles of Freedom, that it was up to women to keep men on a pure path when it came to the depth of their Republican faith. And let's remember that an awful lot of these convictions are framed in a, in, in a quasi-religious language or a fully religious language, that this is about spirituality, that it's about faith. And some of, some of the women certainly do feel uh, that there's an onus on them because of their gender uh, to be seen to be particularly pure when it came to the Republican faith. That's part of it. Also, when it came to the Common Amman Convention, where they voted so overwhelmingly against the treaty, uh, most of the delegates, uh, you know, who were not going to vote against the treaty uh, stayed away. Uh, or sorry, who were going to vote in favour of the treaty stayed away. Uh, it's a bit skewed. Um, but you also have a lot of the <clears throat> common man delegates are from parts of the country uh, where there was particularly strong anti-treaty sentiment. Um, mm. And there is a drop-off. About 12,000 common man uh, women are active during the Civil War. Uh, a drop-off of a couple of thousand from uh, the War of Independence. So it's a combination uh, of different factors. Women became very responsible for the propaganda output mm. of the anti-treaty side, and they're very active uh, in that work. But even on the other side, and we forget sometimes uh, about the pro-treaty women, the assistant military censor for the National Army side was Patricia Hoey, mm. uh, who was a suffragette. Nobody really remembers Patricia Hoey mm. now. Um, and she wasn't successful in her pension application, even though uh, she had plenty of referees. Mm. And what the referees said, that she was doing a man's job. Mm. So even then they defined her in terms of men. And, you know, so the, there are women who, on the other side who were who involved um, in, in civil war work and in civil war propaganda work. Um, but a lot of the uh, experiences of women, of the anti-treaty women, um, it really is about attempting, as they would see it, to keep the opposition to the treaty going. There's very tortured correspondence mm. between Emma de Valera and Mary McSweeney. Um, they have an interesting bond, and de Valera is frustrated with Mary McSweeney because he just finds her not amenable to reason. Mm. He likes to pride himself on being rational. Uh, others may have had other views about, uh, about that, um, but he sees her as being in another category. Mm. Uh, and whilst he can admire the depth of her uh, Republican mm. faith, uh, he can't match it. Um, and you can see with the men as well, you can see that in Ernie O'Malley. I mean, Ernie O'Malley's Civil War letters, his prison letters, are really revealing uh, uh, about an individual who thinks the country hasn't suffered enough. We yeah. have not been through uh, enough voluntary sacrifice. We have to get back our soul. We have to understand the depth of these convictions. I mean, at one stage, Frank Gallagher says as a result of the treaty divide, um, that Ireland is not land or people. Ireland is spirit. Mm. Ireland is the dead and the things the dead would have done. Mm. It can be difficult to argue with that. Mm. Uh, there are others, of course, who are countering that argument by saying Ireland has to be about the living. It's time for I the living. I think Michael Collins said that during the Michael the Collins said it, Kevin O'Higgins said it as well, that you can't sacrifice people's lives to carry on a tradition. Um, so, you know, there's, there are two... Uh, very strong arguments running in, 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 in uh, opposition to each other uh, when it comes to that question of, of, of faith. Uh, and TDs like Frank Fahey would have said in the Dáil debates, well, have we just been playing at republicanism? Mm. 
But then what was republicanism? Yes. What you know, <laughs> I mean, Michael Collins was asked by Carl Ackerman, a US journalist and sometime British spy during the War of Independence, uh, about that. Yeah. And he said, none of us have ever defined a republic. They were separatists, many of them, before they were Republicans. Yes. And what I mean by that uh, is that they hadn't necessarily worked out the bones of what an Irish Republic might look like. Their primary focus is on getting rid of Britain. And de Valera did suggest there was wriggle room uh, in August 1921, before the treaty negotiations, when he said, we're not Republican doctrinaires as such. Hmm. And that idea that, you know, what had been mandated in 19, 1918, the general election for Sinn Féin, was for a Republic but that they would be free, if they achieved that republic, to think about other forms of government, uh, to try and incorporate as many uh, viewpoints as possible. Uh, but you see, the problem by the time of the outbreak of the Civil War is that many would see that as abstract, mm. an abstract dogma. And most people don't live their lives according to abstract uh, dogma. Um, and it does become a sticking point. You know, those who are regarded as betraying the republic mm. Um, I mean, that's a very emotional uh, issue for a lot of people, and it's very genuine, the feeling of betrayal. But the actual debate about what a republic might look, at, look like, um, Ernie O'Malley had no interest in politics. Mm. You, know, and, you know, when he's asked to stand as a, a Sinn Féin, a TD, while he's incarcerated, he's not interested in the politicians. And the way Liam Lynch would have said it is that it was up to the military men to hew the way to freedom mm. for politicians to follow. Well, and there's a distinction to be made, I suppose, between those who are thinking like soldiers and those who regard themselves more as politicians. And you can see them during the Dáil uh, debates. Cottle Brewer refers at one stage to the men who matter. Who yes. are the men who matter? Uh, soldiers. I suppose one of the things that it seems to me about the Civil War, and I'm, I'm interested in your opinion on this is you do talk about um, Ernie O'Malley and a, a one, one quote that I really struck out of me was you talked about his arrogant conviction that it was unnecessary to consult the feelings of the people. You have uh, De Valera's notorious comments that the people have no right to do wrong. Was the Civil War, uh, I mean, given that in June 1922, the, the election be just before the Civil War, six days before, or 12 days before the Civil War, approximately 80% of the people voted either for pro-treaty side or those who, like the Labour Party and the Independents and the Farmers Party, wanted to get on with things. So do you think in some ways that it was, is it sim too simplistic to say it was uh, a civil war between one side that wants to implement the will of the people, which is to get on with the treaty and get on with things, and those who don't believe that the will of the people matter? Well, what, the biggest block of votes in the June 1922 election actually went to neither side of, of Sinn Féin. Yes. It went to the combination of all the others, yes. uh, Labour and Independents and Farmers candidates, which suggested that people were preoccupied with bread and butter issues mm. alongside the big debates of the day about the oath mm. um, and about the hated compromises, mm. um, that you know, people do have to get on uh, with their everyday mm. lives. And Liam de Rochester refers to that in his diary as well. You know, for all the people who are passionately engaged in intense debate about the rights and wrongs of the treaty, there are an awful lot of people who are much more concerned with um, the fight for material survival. Mm. Uh, so we do have to factor that in and, and, with regard to how people may have been thinking in the summer of 1922. As regards the will of the people, uh, there were certainly no shortage of accusations at the time that the will of the people was being ignored by the anti-treaty Republicans. Mm. And some of them do have a contemptuous attitude mm. to the public. There's no doubt about that. Mm. They've been in a bubble in many respects. Yeah. We have to understand the way they were living their lives. Yeah. And there's something that's very difficult for a lot of them to make a transition to thinking in a different way. Yeah. 
And, you know, many of them have been on the run. Many of them have been used to deference and obedience, mm. including Eamon de Valera, yes. who can't cope with the loss of his standing and his status and his authority. Um, so there is that. But there are also those uh, on the pro-treaty side who can be equally contemptuous uh, of the public uh, and can be particularly contemptuous of the women uh, mm. who uh, we mentioned a few moments ago. I don't think any side has a monopoly uh, on, on democratic will or, or virtue. Certainly uh, anti-treaty republicans, some of whom became much more entrenched as the civil war uh, went on, became ever more dismissive of the idea of the people that they knew best. And again, they were used to, to, to dominance uh, and, and they were used to imposing uh, their will on, 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 on people. That's part of it. But then at the same time, Kevin O'Higgins, for example, who you know, becomes, I suppose, one of the strong men of the 1920s governments before he's assassinated uh, in 1927, uh, his argument was that the, the will of the people had to take precedence over everything else and that the welfare of the people was the ultimate law, that there aren't any laws uh, during civil war uh, except the welfare uh, of the people. Uh, but then there's a debate, of course, about, about the extent to which that moved beyond the rhetoric. Once you start executing people, which is another very important part of this conflict, you can go on ex executing people on the grounds that what's at stake is existential. It's yes. about the survival of the state. And once you've made the mental leap that you are going uh, to do this, you can keep on doing it. There's a very chilling line at one stage uh, from W.T. Cosgrave when he tells the neutral IRA, and there is a neutral IRA uh, who shouldn't be forgotten, if I have to execute mm. 10,000 Republicans in order for this state to survive, I will. And he would have. Mm. And I had, uh, a couple of years ago, um, had an opportunity to listen to Liam Cosgrave, mm. who, of course... Yeah. took up the, uh, the mantle of leadership um, uh, at a much later stage in the 1970s. And he so robustly defended yeah. the policies of the executions uh, as being absolutely necessary and enabling the country to survive. Um, so that feeling was very strong on, on the pro-treaty side. Uh, and yet, that's, again, not necessarily uh, the only view uh, on executions. There were those who really struggled within the pro-treaty side, really struggled with this. There are a lot of references in the private diaries uh, to the new distrust and the way people are looking at each other and the way people are interacting. Um, I mean, it adds an, uh, an added emotional barrier or emotional complication for many people. Uh, and there are a lot of references in, in, in the diaries to, again, the idea of a kind of a moral ulcer. You know, that things are happening now that are unspeakable and were unimaginable, particularly for people who have been fighting on the same side um, up to the summer of 1921. How could they be doing this to each other? And exploring the implications of that, not just for those involved in politics and soldiering, mm. but for families that are riven, for communities and parishes. I think it's one of the reasons why we get so many silences, which are not necessarily ignoble. Yes. That can be a way of people dealing with trauma, um, not wanting to exacerbate the tensions and the fault lines that have built up because of what happened in 1922 and 1923. But what strikes you with the pension archive, I suppose, is just how the class differences become so exposed through the process, where some of the individuals associated with some of the excesses of 1922 and 1923 can slip quite comfortably back into civilian life. They can do quite well. They can get quite hefty pensions. 
I'm thinking of Paddy O'Daly, for example, yeah. from the Dublin Guards, who was associated with many of the atrocities uh, in Kerry in the spring of 1923. His portrait ends up in the Hugh Lane Gallery. Uh, he's eminently respectable. He goes back to a good job. He gets a pension of £280 a year. But what I try to do is trace some of the victims uh, of the Cahar Saivine outrage or, or Bally Seedy or Nochnagoshal on, on the National Army side. What became of them? These yeah. were working class recruits. You know, sometimes you are transported from a wood in Kerry to a tenement in Gloucester Street mm. because the soldiers are from Dublin uh, and their families have to deal with the loss of their breadwinner. Um, and th that's the lottery as well uh, that I'm talking about. And there are, of course, bureaucratic cruelties. Uh, one of the victims of, of Nochnagoshal, Edward Stapleton, uh, mm. for example, left two young children and a widow uh, and also his mother mm. in a tenement in Gloucester Street. He'd worked as a foreman in Easton's. And, of course, they're desperate for uh, money, and eventually they get a modest uh, payment. And one of the kids then uh, dies a couple of years later. Died from what was very common, of course, in, in that part uh, of, of Dublin at the time, from TB. And the Department of Finance recoups the month that was paid mm. in the pension for the month after the child died. Uh, sometimes when you read that, yeah. You understand how cruel bureaucracy can seem, but at the same time, as the bureaucrats would have seen it, if this process was to work, they had to try and detach themselves from, from the emotion uh, of these situations. But when you're going through this material, it's very difficult not to be emotional. Mm. Everything about the Civil War is emotional. Yes. Uh, I remember when I started studying history in, uh, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, A.T.Q. Stewart, who was a renowned historian of, of Ulster and Unionism, uh, said people have to stop writing history without the emotion. Mm. And he was talking about different things like the famine and that, you know, you can't write about this in a, in a, in a kind of a technocratic way. You know, we need to understand uh, how emotion is, is sweeping uh, through all of these subjects, and none more so, of course, uh, than the Civil War. There are attempts, obviously, to rein it in afterwards. I suppose the next year is obviously the centenary of the start of the Civil War. I think fundamentally, when we, when we come to debate this subject, I guess the morality or otherwise of the executions carried out by the National Army and also uh, Ballyseedy, which was a notorious episode where eight uh, IRA prisoners were tied to a landmine and blown up only one of them survived. And called Irish bastards yes. before they were blown up. And, and this was done in the name of the state, uh, I think. And I, you know, obviously by modern standards, you can't justify the executions of 77 people, let alone one person, let alone But I'm just wondering, do you think that's an important part of the debate next year to talk about the morality of these executions by the state? in the context of the time in which they happened? Yeah, context being crucial. And I mean, part of the reason why I wrote this book uh, was precisely to try and confront these very difficult issues. It's not about us being, being excessively judgmental mm. or suffocating that generation in judgment. We know what happened afterwards. I was thinking 100 years ago, you know, this weekend, when you consider those who were going over to begin the yeah, negotiations yeah. That, that led to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, that led to the Civil War. We know what happens next. Yes, of course. Let's try and put ourselves in the shoes of those who don't know what's going uh, going to happen next. I know that's difficult to do, uh, but it does perhaps offer an opportunity for us to dilute the potency of, of, of some of our judgments. 
uh, and try and appreciate uh, that things were not always clear-cut and that the depths uh, of feeling uh, were so strong. But at the same time, you've also got to consider, of course, that question, morality. Mm. And I'm a bit wary of it because how, how do you define it today? Mm. Uh, how do you approach it today? Mm. Um, clearly, there were things that were done during the Civil War that were illegal, that were extrajudicial, that were about vengeance uh, and revenge and were visceral. Mm. And the hatreds were visceral. Um, and again, it's not about balancing both sides. I mean, this is a very uneven contest in, in, in some respects, given that the resources that the pro-treaty side have and the National Army have greatly outweigh uh, the anti-treaty Republicans. And yet the anti-treaty Republicans found ways, uh, of, of course, to cause, cause huge problems and carnage uh, on their side. So it's not about an exact equivalence between them. Uh, we've got to look at the dynamics of the, of the conflict and what was available uh, to them at the time. Uh, ultimately, we cannot find an easy answer around morality, which is why I'm trying to, to, to look at the language that was being used at the time. Uh, what did they feel they were doing? Frank O'Connor was a very young internee who went on to become a renowned Cork writer, and he got fed up with what he regarded as the abstract mysticism uh, of, of, of some of his fellow internees. He wanted to hear music. He wanted to hear children laugh. And he said before that, I rarely thought I felt that's a very accurate summation mm. of where a lot of them find themselves. And then when they do begin uh, to think about various things, they discover there are other things that they want. Uh, Sean O'Fallon wrote about this as well. It was about uh, the Civil War waking us up from the mesmerism of the romantic dream. Mm. Uh, and the writers did this very well. I mean, Sean O'Casey did it as well. You need to be careful of personal idealism. Good as it may be and well-intentioned, yeah. its flame in a few hearts may not give rise to new life and hope for the many but dwindle into ghastly funeral pyres. And he's writing about the tenements. Mm. What changed for the people he described as mm. the inanimate patsies of the tenements? There were 800,000 of them, uh, people in Ireland living in overcrowded conditions in 1926. So the argument that he's making is that it didn't change things for those people. So when we talk about morality, uh, we don't just have to think about the, the specific mm. atrocities uh, that you've mentioned. You know, we, we need to think about all those other uh, contextual issues. And I would be very wary of coming up with a, a definitive judgment or, or a definitive answer. Uh, it's about seeing them through the lens of their era, the lights that, that, that guided them. And clearly, we can make our own decision uh, mm. uh, about what they did and the appropriateness uh, of it. What we have to avoid doing, I suppose, is transporting our early 21st century values back to 1922. This is true, but, but you do see at the time, even at the time, you see the Labour leader, Thomas Johnston, standing up in Dáil Éireann time after time, especially after the Hales killing the four guys that were killed the following day. Um, just, they were just taken out and shot. I mean, there, was, there, there wasn't, there was no pretense that was this no was... Pretense. No pretense. that you did. And, you know, you're, you're saying, well, we can't judge them by the standards of our time, but even by the standards of that time. Yeah. Thomas Johnson, who had no dog in that fight, yeah. no, he thought it was wrong. He was, and Johnson was very courageous. Mm. Uh, and the Labour Party were courageous during that period. And they were also providing the only meaningful opposition voice in the Dáil because the anti-treaty Republicans were not taking their seats. Uh, and whilst they were contemptuous, many of them, of politics, including Liam Lynch, Liam Lynch also wanted to use individuals in the Dáil when he thought it would be helpful mm. in terms of, of, of propaganda uh, for the other side. And Tom, Thomas Johnson absolutely said there was no pretense at legality. He said, you have strangled the new state mm. at its birth. Mm. And... 
that'll give you an idea of, of how high the emotions were, uh, were running. The failure to consult families. Yes. People getting telegrams to say that their loved ones had been executed earlier that morning, getting the telegram later in the afternoon. That's how they find out. And Richard Mulcahy was having none of the idea that they would give them advance notice. So yes, absolutely we can make uh, our assessments and our judgments uh, about those kind of cruelties. And we do need, of course, to consider uh, what was involved in the compartmentalization, mm. if that's what it was, that, that people were able to become cold and detached uh, in relation to this. You mentioned Sean Hales. Mm. Sean Hales was killed, mm. of course, in December 1922. The Free State has just formally yeah. come into existence a year after the treaty. But I got interested in the Hales family as well, not just because of that assassination, yeah. but because his brother Robert was on the other side. Yeah. Uh, and his pension application is a desperate tale yeah. of privation, of premature death. Mm. And he said, I couldn't go home. Yeah. So he's on the run. And a lot of these people uh, are on the run uh, afterwards. So, I mean... The, Within those particular experiences and those executions that you're talking about, you're finding extraordinary cruelties heaped on uh, cruelties. And also people being unable to settle, whether that's the, you know, mm. the mother of Rory O'Connor uh, or the family of Patrick Tuhig, who was a railway worker mm. in Inchicore. You know, these aren't the household names. You know, yeah. we remember those who were executed in December 1922. But when you begin to look at the rest of them, you can see uh, how there is also... Um, a lesser uh, value attached to working class lives. What do I mean by that? Well, consider Erskine Childers. Yes. Erskine Childers, the people got advance notes, you know, a very high profile execution, uh, but there is there's an, an element of class working there, you know, uh, that there was pressure because of his status. He was a, obviously a former uh, senior British civil servant, a, a renowned author. And you can also find acts of, of generosity that he shakes the hands of those who are about to execute, them, uh, execute him, that he gets the Erskine Jr., who's only a teenager, 16, to promise that he will devote himself to reconciliation, that if he does find the people who executed his father, that he'll shake their hands. Uh, again, there's great nobility uh, in that. Uh, so I suppose I'm conscious that in all the bleakness mm. and the attitudes that harden and calcify um, and that, just that bleak vista you do find pockets of humanity. You do find moments uh, of great courage. Stephen Fuller, miraculously, when the Ballycedy mine exploded, was blown so yeah. far away that he survived with very severe burns and he was traumatised for the rest of his life. But he refused to become a poster boy for the anti-treaty side. He became a Fianna Fáil TD briefly, but he never spoke about it. He would not speak about it uh, publicly and he carried his trauma with a quiet and noble dignity uh, and many people were able to do that. So we do need to be conscious uh, of the efforts and the lengths that people went to uh, to try and come to terms with this, but also to try and not exacerbate, I suppose, the existing enmities as they existed. It's interesting that obviously, you know, we have the we Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael in power now, where if the government holds, and that's a big if, but let's say they do, who will be in power marking the centenary next year? So you have... And interestingly enough, right up to December night, uh, next year, Michal Martinus Taoiseach and then Leo Varadkar takes over. And Leo Varadkar said Bally CD shouldn't have happened. So those atrocities will be, commemorating those atrocities, the centenary of those atrocities will be on his watch. Now, is there anything to be said for a state apology or a state acknowledgement for some of the stuff that was done in the name of the state 100 years ago? There is, but where do you stop? 
where do you begin and where do you stop? Um, I think what will probably transpire instead of, of apologies is a theme of reconciliation, that you choose a day where the dead of the Civil War can be remembered. Uh, Todd Andrews was later to write about the Civil War. He was only a teenager when he was interned during it. You know, there's no glory in Civil War. There are no monuments to the victors and to victory, only to the dead. You don't celebrate uh, Civil War. You remember, uh, you commemorate as you see fit. Is that about picking a day where you bring both um, inheritors of the different sides uh, together, and they are actually formally sharing power now in that political sense, you bring them together um, and you have a, a day of reflection, uh, a day of discussion, a day of, you would hope, uh, honest confrontation and, 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 and nuanced uh, remembrance. But at the same time, you've got to allow people to commemorate as they see fit. Mm. Um, and there are always going to be people who want to do it in their own way. Mm. You know, Sinn Féin have often had a kind of a parallel mm. uh, commemorative agenda that's separate from the state, and they'll continue to do that. There are local groups who are devoted to events that happened in their districts. Mm. Uh, there's brilliant work that goes on at local history level and through the local uh, authority libraries. And, you know, the state should not be directing in that sense that there will be a onus on the state to find a way to mark uh, the civil war and to discuss it honestly. Some might feel, and some will demand, I'm sure, apologies for specific instances. I think Sinn Féin already have done it. Yeah, and there could be a long point. list, yeah. you know, when you consider all, all, all of the various horrible events of the Civil War. But will that take you too far into uh, layers and layers and layers of, of, of demands uh, for apologies that uh, in many respects are going to take us away from other ways we could be looking at the Civil War and seeking to understand it more? That you don't just want the focus to be uh, on the Ballycedes uh, mm. or the Nocknagoshans. That you know, that you want uh, something much more rounded. Uh, those events will always stand out in the hierarchy of civil war remembrance. But what I would hope is that people would remember the kind of people I'm writing about in the second half of the book uh, in particular. You know, these were people who, whatever side they were on, they devoted much of their youth and their vigor and their conviction to these causes. Mm. And for many of them, it was the defining uh, era for them. Mm. I was reading a memoir there by Liam O'Brien who opted out of the Civil War. Mm. But he said, 1922 never left me. Mm. You know, it marked people, men and women in a particular way. And it would be nice to think about those people. I always think that the historical events, uh, I put them in two categories. One, their history, as in what happened doesn't really matter in a contemporary setting, or else their current affairs. When I'm thinking about partition, 100 years partition is still as live a subject now as it was 100 years ago, as we've seen from the fallout over the uh, president's decision not to go to Armagh. But is the Civil War, in your view, history that we can put behind us, or is it still current? Oh, the Civil War is, is, uh, is both. I mean, what strikes me, of course, about the sensitivity relation to the Civil War is how it can clash with current affairs. Uh, not so much mm. now to the extent that was apparent in, in the post-Civil um, War decades and the earlier decades of the state's existence. Uh, now, sometimes we exaggerate the extent to which Dáil proceedings were dominated by the Civil War. You know, Sean Lamas, uh, as I mentioned, was, was very quiet uh, about the Civil War. And, of course, his, his brother Noel had been 
savagely mutilated and killed even after the end uh, of the Civil War. But he described his colleague, Sean T. O'Kelly, as always looking for an opportunity yeah. to climb up the pole Imagine and the shout 70s. the Republic uh, from, the, from the rooftop. Uh, and he took the bait, you know, and he was goaded. Uh, and that worked. I mem remember reading uh, the memoir of Noel Brown when he went in to the Dáil in 1948 uh, and he was struck by how Ballyseedy and 77 mm. were being shouted across the chamber and he described it as the uh, white hot hate yes. uh, of the civil war that it was still there obviously and it you know th and they were the civil war generation but you know that wasn't happening uh, week in week out uh, and people did find a way to deal with it it frustrated uh, some who felt that a lot of the energies mm. Uh, of the civil war and of civil war politics could have been expended more effectively <laughs> uh, in other areas. Like James Dillon used to castigate uh, what he described as the codology yeah. uh, of politics in this chamber. What ideological differences, if words retain their meaning, divide any two deputies on either side of this house, uh, which was a fair point because it was the nomination of a new Taoiseach and, you know, again, where were you in 1922? Mm. <laughs> uh, and it was actually brought up by a Labour uh, Party TD initially. So there was that. The potency and the sting and the heat went out of it to a certain extent because the Civil War generation passed. Mm. But what I found very revealing was just the depth of the antipathy that existed towards independence. Mm. John Amass couldn't yeah. abide the independence. He was very tribal uh, in his thinking. And a lot of those politicians were very tribal in their thinking. But you could still see the tensions... Uh, with the Supply and Confidence Agreement. You know the way uh, you'd have um, individuals who would be niggling away mm. uh, in relation to what they would regard as certain of the cultural inheritances mm. uh, of this period. The Clongo's boys versus the Christian Brothers mm. boys uh, in politics. And then the women who are saying, yeah, it is the boys, that's the problem, you know? Uh, and perhaps uh, things wouldn't have got as bad if more women had been in public life and, and, and politics. So it does, and I mean, that's only a couple of years uh, I'm talking about. I think Micheál Martin, was he saying, I think he was saying that there was, before the 2020 election, that basically there was a class bias that, you know, I think a lot of the Fine Gael politicians didn't know what it was like to struggle and stuff like that. And he said he was making a lot of growing yeah. up in a, in a council. But I mean, that, that's yeah. partly the Civil War legacy yeah. as well, in that Micheál Martin, when he took over the leadership, would have made much of his background, yeah. his father as a bus conductor. Yeah. Um, and what he was, the argument he was making is that we need to go back yeah. to our foundational aims, yeah. you know, to our original mission as a radical party yeah. uh, in the late 1920s. And, and what was said in 1932 by one of the Fianna Fáil TDs uh, was that this was about a, not just a change of, of political guard, it was about a change of class. Mm. Uh, now that was exaggerated too, mm. but there was an element of truth in it. When you look at the people, who felt they had no stake in the country or who mm. felt disenfranchised. Men and no property. You know, the men, they, they did go to Fianna Fáil, yeah. you know, um, and Fianna Fáil built up a very loyal and, and durable support base in both urban and, and rural areas when it came to housing and, and the small farmers and so on. So, I mean, that class uh, alliance was real. And, of course, the complexion has completely changed now because a lot of that, uh, you know, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil you know, have lost a lot of that ground, and Fianna Fáil particularly have lost a lot of that ground for obvious reasons with the rise of Sinn Féin. And, you know, people like Sean Lamass likes to say that there was no real need for a Labour Party in Ireland because we're the real Labour Party. Mm. And they did steal a lot of the Labour Party's agenda and clothes when you go back uh, to the 1930s. So there is that. But, you know, where we are now, 100 years on, you know, I, I suspect there might be quite a lot of references to how far we've travelled.
Uh, um, but it took a long time. I have one more question. No, Bert wants to get to, uh, some some uh, questions from the floor. I just have one last question of my own to ask you. We've been speaking for nearly an hour about the Irish Civil War. I never mentioned Michael Collins. But you 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 do talk in the book almost like about the cult of Michael mm-hmm. Collins, that he's that he's that mythical character that Ireland would have been a different country had he lived. Uh, you think here. that the, you think that there's there, there's an element of scepticism. Michael Collins did not live on a different ideological planet than his colleagues, and we have to remember that uh, he was extraordinarily talented and able, and he was probably most effective as as an administrator, as an organizer, uh, as a minister. Uh, he frequently cajoled his colleagues for not being as smart as he was and not working as hard uh, as he did, uh, but he also had a conservative streak in him. And historians like Anne Dolan and, and William Murphy have done a fine job in, in the limited amount of material that he left behind yeah. to try uh, uh, and, and uncover the extent of his ideological leanings, if any. And they're very slim. Uh, so I don't buy the idea that Ireland would have been a transformed place. Sometimes when you look at what he did leave behind in the collected speeches of Collins, The Path to Freedom, mm. which was published uh, just after his death, uh, his meanderings are very similar to one Eamon de Valera's mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the idealisation of the West, when it comes to what Ireland can become again by going back mm. to Ireland's ancient customs and, and, and spirit. But he also ensured, of course, that the Department of Finance <laughs> was a very powerful government department, uh, which, of course, it, it remained. And, you know, the idea that there would have been a completely different ideological complexion to governments that might have been led uh, by Michael Collins, I find a bit far-fetched. But there's an inevitability around that what if mm. because of the fall of an icon. Mm. And Michael Collins was a very famous man in 1922. And he was only, people forget he was only 31. He was very young yeah. and he didn't have everything worked out, none of them did. Um, but there, there was certainly a great ability there. I mean, some Fianna Fáil politicians were later to make the argument, including David Andrews, mm. that, you know, there were those wings uh, within the Fine Gael yeah, party, yeah. that there were different wings, yeah. that there, was, there were those who would have been more open uh, to uh, more ideological, uh, a, a greater ideological range. Um, and again, you, you can take that for, for what it's worth. But again, you know, singling out the lost leader as the answer, as the salvation, uh, is always highly problematic and deeply romantic. My name is Thomas Dempsey. Just a quick question. Are we grown up enough to face the reality of what, we, what the state, free state did during the Civil War? We give out about the black and tans, and we give out about the auxiliaries, but we had our own version of the black and tans. And in my view, the auxiliaries with the Special Infantry Corps in 1922 or 23. And in my view, the Dublin squad will be our version of the auxiliaries. I mean, we look at what happened with Oriel House, for example, and just what's the committed there. And I actually read the cover-up over the Ballyshealy massacre that was in the National Library. And it struck how similar it was to what happened with Bloody Sunday in 1969, the cover-up there. So do you think we as a society can face the really horrible things that, were, that was carried out in the Civil War on our behalf by the national government? You're absolutely right about the... Um the replication of, of black and tan methods, it crops up again and again. I mean, the accusation is made about both sides uh, that they are aping the worst excesses of the black and tans. It was frequently uh, said in 1922 and 1923. Uh, so that, that was certainly there. The discovery that we were more than capable of doing these kind of things uh, to ourselves. 
Uh, yes, I do think we are ready uh, to face that. There are obviously a generation now uh, who perhaps are not carrying the same amount of, of, of inherited fear of confronting that. Um, a lot of the people who are in, in political life now uh, may well feel that they're not carrying civil war baggage and that that has to be faced squarely. And it's not just an Irish question. You know, we have to remember that what Winston Churchill dismissed as the wars of the pygmies, in other words, the succession wars after the First World War, between 1918 and the early 1920s, of which the Irish Civil War is a part, they killed four million people. Mm. The wars of the pygmies, you know, uh, Winston Churchill's dismissal of them. And, you know, that's not just about what happened in Ireland, but in Hungary and Finland and Greece and Turkey. And they've all had to deal with their pasts in different ways. There were 36,000 people killed in the Finnish Civil War in a country of similar size and population. Uh, and thousands of them were starved to death deliberately, which didn't happen in Ireland, uh, thankfully. So it, you know, it's, it's a much bigger question about how societies uh, deal with the aftermath of that or whether they bury it or are confronted at different stages. Spain is still grappling with its own Civil War legacy, which of course comes uh, after ours. But we should be ready. We're a very mature democracy. If you look at the countries that managed to retain their democracies uh, throughout these post-Civil War decades, you know, we're in a very small club. You know, some Finnish political opponents were able to share power in the 1930s. Mm. They had ways of dealing with it. So 100 years on, yes, I do think we should be able for that. I was just, just uh, can I add very quickly, I was in uh, Helsinki two years ago and I went to the, uh, the, the, the Finnish Museum of uh, History, right, the, the National Museum, uh, just to see how they marked their civil war. And it was like a cabinet just like that. And that was it. Yeah. And I was going, where's the rest of it? Yeah. Whereas they have a huge, um, they have a huge display in relation to the Winter War of 1939, 1940. So yeah. we're not the only country that has problems. With no, this. and I mean, sometimes less is more, yeah. uh, as people would see it when it comes to Civil War commemoration. Were there many people who started off on the anti-treaty side and changed when they saw the will of the people? No, I don't, th there's not much evidence of that that I found. Now, if that question is about TDs, I'm not sure if it is about TDs, yes, uh, I think there would have been wavering. When you consider the Christmas break in particular, the treaty debates were held over December and 1921 and January 1922, and there was a lot of pressure when people went back to their constituencies, and there was pressure from church leaders as well, uh, which we didn't get time to go into, mm. but that's an important factor as well. Um, when it comes to some of those moral questions uh, you were talking about. You know, the church is much more vocal during the Civil War than it had been during the War of Independence. Uh, the bishops are broadly pro-treaty. That would have influenced, uh, I think, some of the TDs because it was believed uh, at one point in December that it was likely that the vote would be lost, you know, that the anti-treaty side would prevail. But also constituents may be uh, putting pressure on their, own, their TDs. And it raised this interesting question. Was the Doyle that debated the treaty representative of those constituents. These were TDs who had been returned unopposed uh, in the summer of 1921 to the Doyle. And there's an interesting question there. It goes back to what you asked about the June 1922 mm. election mm. as well. You know, were the, was the split in the Doyle representative of, of how people were feeling nationally? Uh, perhaps not. Uh, I'm sure there were individuals too uh, who would have been minded to carry on fighting. Uh, but then decided that they wouldn't. I think that was more likely than going to the other side. In other words, people who were anti-treaty wouldn't lose that conviction, but they might lose the intensity of their feeling to the extent that they were not prepared to fight. But it didn't mean they were prepared to go over to the, the, the National Army side. This might be slightly offbeat comment, but I was thinking what you said about Michael Collins. I wondered about the fact that because he was young, he was good-looking, 
and let's face it, quite a virile-looking man. <laughs> um, was that, in a sense, really why he has been frozen? Because I was leaving school in 75, and you had, you know, the president who seemed to have gone on and on and on up in the auras. So we had Paul Durkin writing the mocking poem, Making Love in Front of Oris Nuktron. Was there a cry for let us lift this repression, please? That's my question. I can still see him now in the heat haze of the day, blindly stalking us down and levelling an ancient gun, he says. Stop making love outside Oris Nuktron. Um, it, was, it was a great... Um, it captured, I suppose, that sense of, of a relic in the park, as, as, as Durkin would have seen it at the time, somebody who had been there far too long, and he wouldn't have been alone uh, in that view. But I think there's absolutely, definitely something in that. Um, and, you know, would James Dean be remembered uh, as much as he uh, is if he uh, was not blessed with good looks? Uh, obviously, Collins um, had that going for him. Uh, and as Ronan mentioned, you know, he's very young when he dies. Um, he... Uh, in that sense, um, doesn't live for all the disappointments that come, uh, w can come with long life uh, to be part of him, in including the physical part. Um, and George Bernard Shaw wrote to Michael Collins' sister just after he died and, and told her to hang out her brightest colours um, and, and be grateful that he didn't live to be an old man uh, lying in bed with a trumpery cough, inevitably disappointed <laughs> about all the failures that would have attended his life had he lived. Uh, perhaps a tad insensitive to be writing. <laughs> but you could see the point he was making. Um, so there's definitely something in that. And I mean, Collins, uh, you can see that during the period of the treaty negotiations. Um, it's not just about the whiff of sulfur, and obviously this is this one, one of the most wanted men is now in Downing Street. Um, but there's also that sense of Collins being in intense demand when it comes to London society. Um, and a lot of women are involved uh, in that as well. His virility, you, you can debate. Uh, I think Peter Hart, uh, the late Peter Hart, one of his biographers, is pretty confident that he died a virgin. Um, when, I, when, I, when I mentioned that some years ago, I got into awful trouble. Uh, but you'd be happy to know, uh, I don't know uh, about Michael Collins' sex life uh, beyond whatever hints might exist in, in, in certain letters between himself and, and, and Katie Kiernan. But absolutely, uh, this is again part of, of the, um, the dashing lost leader. And it does uh, embellish him and his reputation. And it also, I think you're right, um, it allows that image to be sustained as others grow old. With all of the brutality on both sides during the Civil War, why was there a smooth rapprochement after the war? Mm, well, not smooth, but... There's a strong emphasis in the aftermath of the Civil War on what the both sides have in common. 94% of the population of the new free state was Catholic. That's a binding agent. Uh, and of course, it's another issue altogether as to how that allegiance was used uh, and how that power was used and abused. That, to me, is another one of the legacies uh, of the Civil War, but it's, it, it's another... It's another hour. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so th that's part of it. The GA plays a role as well. You know, when you think about binding agents, you know, and the sense of finding a common playing ground, um, uh, and even eventually the Garda, Shikana becomes a force that both sides can, can find a home in. So it's partly about that. It's also partly about their allegiances predating the Civil War. They had things in common before the Civil War. Many of them, of course, had fought together uh, during the War of Independence. But I also think it's because of a democratic culture in Ireland predated the Civil War. And this is where we're different. 
than some other countries that I mentioned earlier on in the post-First World War period. Um, you know, we had that tradition, uh, and that helps to achieve um, a degree of stability and um, a respect for the democratic institutions. Not everybody, of course. There are many who can't reconcile themselves to the state. Uh, and also, and it's cruel, but it's true, a lot of the troublemakers were gone, you know? Uh, there is that, that exodus, uh, again, going back to, to West Kerry, about 40% of the IRA men uh, from West Kerry during the Civil War were gone uh, by the 1930s. Um, there isn't a sense of layer of trouble uh, that is exported, uh, and that creates great difficulties uh, for, those, for, for many of those individuals. But there's also, I think, uh, a determination to try and come to terms with the excesses uh, of the Civil War um, by making a priority of politics. Um, when you look even during the Second World War at the premium attached to the idea of sovereignty and going our own way, both sides of the Civil War buy into that. And both sides of the Civil War actually serve uh, in, in the Defence Forces during the Second World War and in the local Defence Forces as well. Uh, and then they also work together when it comes to the pensions process. The old IRA men's associations in many respects became welfare organisations. Um, and again, from both sides of the Civil War, what they have in common is they want to see a pensions process that will work for both sides. Uh, and sometimes they can even write on, on behalf of each other, um, which you know, would have taken quite a lot for, for, for some of them. So I think there's a number, there are a number of different themes there. My name is uh, Vincent Kelly. And my question to you would be, as an historian, would you be optimistic or pessimistic about the future of Northern Ireland? <laughs> you so have the, to be, the reason, you the have reason to be I, pessimistic to be a historian. <laughs> no, go on, sorry. No, the, the reason I ask is that we're always told that the team that went to London uh, were up against politicians who were really hard-nosed, experienced, uh, both politicians, civil servants, and military. So how would you compare the team that the Irish uh, team had to negotiate uh, with in Britain at the time in 10 Downing Street versus the people who were in 10 Downing Street at the moment? Well, I, um, I was lucky before lockdown um, to be in the archives in London looking at the correspondence of, of David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill. Um, and whatever about their minds being saturated with imperialism, particularly Winston uh, Churchill, what is so striking um, is the cleverness uh, with which they can express themselves, um, the depth of their range and their views. We have to appreciate um, that Ireland was a small part of a very large imperial jigsaw. They're concerned about what's going on in uh, Iraq uh, and in Greece and in Palestine and in India. Um, you know, we forget that sometimes, just how insignificant we are. Uh, and Winston Churchill, as Secretary of State for Colonies, uh, you know, it, it is corresponding with Lloyd George about all those different matters. But what strikes me, I suppose, is, is the maturity um, that they had as practitioners uh, of, of, of politics. David Lloyd George was leading a coalition government uh, and had all sorts of different, um, different individuals to satisfy, including those who were termed as the diehards, uh, but also the, the strategies that they employed, uh, the capacity to speak out of different sides of their mouths, um, um, they've, they did that to a sophisticated degree, uh, which is not something you will find uh, in Downing Street at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I, you, you are, and again, this isn't about 
ideological preferences. I'm talking about politics and how, how serious the business of politics was taken. Um, it's been debased, the idiocy that we've witnessed uh, in recent times and the debasement uh, of, of public discourse, of political debate, and of politics as an art. Um, so that, that really strikes me. Um, and obviously those, you talked about the, you know, the future and, and, and being optimistic for the future. You know, coming out of a civil war, a study of, of the civil war, your fervent hope is always, of course, um, that wounds uh, are not reopened to the extent that people feel uh, it's necessary uh, for, for battles to be fought again. Um, that, you know, as long as there's an acceptance, a broad acceptance, that whatever issues remain, and there are many of them, and as Rona mentioned, I mean, these are not closed issues by any means, as we've seen from recent events, um, that they will, uh, despite sometimes the ferociousness of their, their rhetoric, that they will keep with dialogue and, and, and stick with dialogue. Um, I'm struck by what's changed dramatically uh, in, in Northern Ireland in relation to the loss of unionist supremacy uh, and dominance. That's a huge cultural change for, for unionism as well as a political change, and it's one of the reasons why um, they're flailing and, and struggling at the moment in relation to the coherence of, uh, of their identity. That is going to change Northern Ireland. And yet, do we think enough about the others? You know, we still have a tendency, obviously, and maybe understandably, to think about the two communities or the two sides. There's a very substantial third grouping in Northern Ireland who don't identify um, with the traditional sides. Um, and they, too, are the future uh, of Northern Ireland. So, you know, I think that's a cause for optimism. And it comes back to, I suppose, a point about generational change. Uh, and what people are prioritizing. Um, and, you know, you would hope that that more diverse complexion uh, and perhaps more uh, broad-ranging uh, identifications uh, and identities uh, will leave Northern Ireland in a better place. Well, on that uh, uh, upbeat note, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Jim Referta for a fascinating talk. To thank all of you for waiting for so long here today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter where we're at, at HistFest. Music